I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Two Rock Minute Talk Station. Sports Talk. Two minutes. Next and Fox Derek News. Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Another day, another edition for the Kansas basketball program. Joe Yesifu. He's officially listed as Joseph Yesifu, but his Twitter handle is Joe. I assume he likes to go by Joe. Mm. But then again, Yudoka Azubuki's Twitter handle was Tim Yudoka. <laughs> Nobody ever called him Tim. Well, maybe he wanted to. Maybe he was just we too were always missing. Yeah. He was just too bashful to mm-hmm. tell us what he preferred to be referred to as. That's a shame. He got all the way through. Can you imagine? If, no, I go by Tim. If we called that guy Tim. It sounds weird now. Dok, Yudoka, Azabuki. No, it's Tim. Or if he just... Ch- no, I'm Steve. I'm Steve Azabuki. Is that- he a first-round pick if his name is Tim? He was a first-round pick if I know. his name is Doke. I know, because it's a cool name. Yeah. Yeah, you're probably right. Um, I think it has more to... I mean, probably mostly to do with the fact that he's seven feet tall, explosive, great athlete. No, but like, you know, the, the scout's like trying to be in the, the ear of the GM and it's like, you got to watch this guy. You got to watch this Yudoka Azubuki guy. Like, he's he's a beast. He's like, ooh, Yudoka Azubuki. Yeah, sure. The scout goes up to him. If his name's Tim, he goes, hey, you got to watch this guy, Tim. You know, the GM's like, ah. Ah, we, we got enough Tims. Yeah. You know. Joseph Yesifu is coming to Kansas by way of Drake University. And if you if you heard of this guy, it's probably because you were watching Drake play Wichita State in the first four game a couple of weeks ago. And if you did watch that game, you most certainly would have noticed the best play from that game, which was Joseph Yesifu, all six foot and 180 pounds of him throwing down one of the nastiest dunks we saw in the tournament. Yesifu, yes, please. <laughs> you look at his raw numbers, they don't really tell the full story. This past year, averaged about 13 points per game, shot 38% from three. Not much of a distributor, not much of a rebounder. This guy is a scorer. He did average a little over one steal per game. He was named the Missouri Valley Sixth Man of the Year. That is one way to tell the story. Let's dive a little bit deeper into why Joseph Yesifu, not why he's at Kansas, but why he was even on Kansas's radar to begin with. Yesifu's a sophomore at Drake. And as I mentioned, he was the sixth man of the year in the conference because he wasn't starting for most of the year. That's because senior point guard Roman Penn was the guy for Drake. But near the end of the season, Roman Penn goes out with an injury and doesn't play again all season, which opened up the door for more playing time 
for Yesifu. But even before that happened, two games, in fact, before that happened, February 17th, Drake had a road game against Northern Iowa. Yesifu in that game came off the bench in 28 minutes, scored 20 points, went 8 of 16 from the field, went 4 of 8 from three-point range. Really solid game off the bench. It was his first time scoring 20 points. A few games before that, he scored 18 against Northern Iowa. But this was a guy whose minutes would range anywhere from six minutes a game, like he played against K-State to open the season. For much of the non-conference season, he was playing 15, 12, 16, 13, 14 minutes. The minutes started to go up as the season progressed. By the time February came around, he was getting about 20 minutes off the bench every single night. And that even moved up even more, like 29 minutes versus Valpo, 28 minutes versus Loyola. Then that Northern Iowa game happened. 28 minutes off the bench, scored 20 points. Next night out, once again, off the bench, 26 minutes played. Yesifu goes 12 of 14 from the field. He goes 5 of 7 from 3, and he leads the team with 32 points. This is about the time, this is the time when Roman Penn gets injured. Everything went right for Drake in that game, except for the fact that they lost their starting point guard. But all of a sudden, you've got this guy who's coming off the bench, exploding offensively, who you feel like you may want to see what he has. Let's give him a little bit more run. And more run is exactly what he got. And in those final seven games of the season, all of which Yesifu started, He scored 36 points, 16 points, 21 points, 25 points, 12 points, 21 points, 26 points. In those seven games, Yesifu came off the court for two minutes. Two minutes in seven games. What's seven times 40? 280. Joe Yesifu played 278 of 280 possible minutes in Drake's final seven games this season. He didn't just become a spark off the bench. He became a starter. He didn't just become a starter, though. He became their best player. And he didn't just become their best player. He became a star. Mm. In the last seven, in the last nine games of the season, Joseph Yesifu averaged over 23 points per game. He was a knockdown shooter. 30 of 64 from three, that's 47%. He went 39 of 46 from the free throw line, that's 85%. That is high volume, that is high efficiency, that is a point guard, a good athlete, a bucket getter, a shot creator, a playmaker, everything that this team was missing. Bobby Pettiford was a nice get. I think he'll factor into the mix. Cam Martin, a bit of a surprise, D2 All-American. Clearly, they, they, they like the guy. I'd imagine he's going to be competing for backup big minutes. But this is different. Because I'll tell you right now, April 7th, I'll bet you that Joe Yesifu is a starting guard for Kansas next season. Now, is that at the one? Is that at the two? Like I said, he's not a big distributor. He's not a big creator for others. He is a shot getter. He is going to start for KU next year. Yes, I feel good about that. Um, when Bill Self said after the game, the athletic comment that we've referenced a hundred times already since KU season's come to a close, this is what he's talking about. 
He's talking about a quick athletic guard who can beat somebody off a bounce, who can kind of put pressure on the defense by getting into the lane or can create his own shot on the perimeter because of how quick he is. And, oh, you mentioned that dunk that he had, that crazy dunk against Wichita State. Um, This dude is, in my opinion, kind of perfectly what you needed. And he is a perfect guy that, you know, the only thing that would make it better was if if he's, I don't know, like 6'4". Because then you feel really good about playing him next to Dewan Harris, who's shorter. Well, if he was six four, probably exactly. be going to the league. Exactly, and I, I I get it. Like the Baylor guards, the three guards that they had out there were bigger than your normal point guards. Like, but still six three, six three, six four were Baylor's guards, and they won the national title. So it's not like you need a bunch of guys who are six foot seven on the wing and a shooting guard and stuff to make it work. He kind of fits that perfectly to me. And you look at what he did in. If you're saying, oh well. How did he do against the top-level competition? Because obviously you're going to be going in a step up. And, you know, that Drake game against USC that they lost in the first round, you might look at the score and say, man, they only scored 56 points as a team in that game. Like, they had an awful game shooting uh, two-point shots against USC. And you say, well, is this going to translate? Yesifu had 26 of the team's 56 <laughs> points in that loss to USC. I-, I tweeted out a highlight earlier of him putting up this crazy floater from, like, the elbow that he – it almost like hit the roof with how high he shot it over Evan Mobley, who was trying to block the shot. He gets it to go. This is the exact type of player that I think you were missing on last year's team. And now all of a sudden, as of right now, you're at your scholarship limit. Uh, I, I, I guess if Bill Self really needed to go out and get some, if he were, if he were dead set on getting Christian Bishop, if he were dead set on getting Ty Ty Washington, both names that have been heavily linked to Kansas, um, the Stanley Umud, at this point, I'd be I'd be surprised if you get him. Um, maybe if Ochai were to leave, we're going to talk to Jesse Newell about that. But I I don't see Je- Ochai leaving, so I don't see you getting this kid from South Dakota. I think the two names to watch are Christian Bishop from Creighton, uh, six seven, uh, wing, more of a big guy, just an athletic big, uh, even though he's not that big, only about six seven. I, I think of him more as. Uh, a more athletic Jalen who's maybe not as skilled offensively. Yes, but I mean, I think it's good to point out that and I get it. Like it helps with how good Creighton is at spacing the floor, but like he was shooting in the mid sixties for a percentage. So it is at least an efficient guy who can come in for you. Now, the other piece of this is they don't have a scholarship open right now. Right. And that's what I was same, getting to. Yeah. So if, if, if you're dead, if you're Bill Self and you have to add one of these guys, you're going to have to excuse someone from the table. And I guess that would be Latrell Giselle, but I have no idea if Latrell Giselle wants to leave. I have no idea if he wants to transfer, if he's like, no, this is where I want to be. Either way, this is big business college basketball. If if Bill wants to get one of these guys, he's going to try to find a new home for somebody who's currently here. I would I would hit the brakes just a little bit to wonder, is that what you want to do? Do you want to bring in 12 guys, all of whom who think they should be starting or in the mix for starting? Right, so you could probably convince a guy like KJ Adams, "Hey, you're a year away." Sydney Curry, JUCO guy, "Hey, you're gonna have to battle for minutes, right? If you can't beat out Mitch Lightfoot and and a, a D two player, then you're not gonna play." Zach Clemens, same thing. So, the freshmen, I'm not so concerned about because none of them are the caliber of player where they should expect that that this offense is gonna revolve around him or that they're gonna be a huge piece right away. They're going to have to earn mm-hmm. those spots. But, I mean, at this point, you brought in Bobby Pettiford, who I'd imagine wants to compete for point guard minutes, and he should. 
You brought in Yesifu, who is going to compete and I think play a lot. Okay, well, what about Dewan Harris? What about Christian Brown? What about Bryce Thompson? Like, one of these guys who we think, hey, they could be a starter on this team, is going to end up not playing very much. So, you're rounding out this roster in a really nice way. And I think on paper, I'm looking at a team that's probably going to start the season top three in the country, especially if they make another addition. But with that comes, I think, hurdles. And I chalk this up as one of those good problems, right? you got too much talent. You've got too much competition. And it's not to me about competition because Bill Self is really good at managing egos. To me, it's more about the meshing and the fitting and figuring out where the pieces fit because that's what we've always loved about Bill is that he's been as good, if not better, than anybody at the country at you know molding it year after year where these guys who stick around for two or three years, all of a sudden, by the time they're a junior or senior, they're your star player. Kind of like what I will expect from Ochai going into next year. How do all the pieces fit around it? This past year, you had good pieces. They didn't fit. Now you've went out and you've restocked the cupboard, so to speak. What remains to be seen is the fit. I like the talent. I think that this team is objectively better than they were a season ago. I'm just not sure yet what it's going to look like, which makes sense because it's early April. But the more and more guys you bring in, especially the transfer guys who are coming here, not to sit on the bench, man, they're coming here to play, It more questions pop up as to, okay, what, what should we be envisioning for these guys? Yeah, and I think that does make you wonder, you know, how does that affect a locker room during the season? Are there going to be some unhappy campers in there? And maybe, but I know this isn't something where Bill Self has been able to just kind of use the bench as a motivator like he's said that he likes to do in the past of late. And maybe that's what he's trying to get back to here. Now, maybe it's an overcorrection trying to get to that and trying to get back to the team that he kind of likes, but... I don't know. There's another part of me that goes, you know, okay, certainly instead of having maybe 12 guys who you feel like could crack the rotation, you maybe would rather say, no, I'd rather just have like 10 guys that could crack the rotation. And then the other two guys are like scholarships you'd use on developmental players who they're going to come into play down the road because they're not going to play anyway. But I think given the way that college basketball is going, where it's like, oh, if you are one of those developmental guys, you're, gonna you're leave not anyway. sticking around. You're going to yeah. leave anyway. So, so why not just bring in a roster of all guys who can compete for a spot? And you know what? If you don't make it into that top eight or nine guys of the rotation yeah. that we know Bill Self likes to play, guess what? Whether you're a developmental guy or a transfer or a high-recruited freshman or whatever you were, you were probably going to leave regardless. So might as well just make the competition as best as possible. Yeah, maybe that's exactly what he's doing. He's getting ahead of the curve saying this is what it's going to be like, so I might as well go out and get as many players who want to try and compete as possible, already knowing that whether it's guys I bring in now or guys who are already on the bench, if they're not playing next year, they're just going to leave after that anyway. And then guess what? I'll just go back to the transfer market and do it all again. Exactly. So it does make uh, a bit of sense. He's Derek Johnson. I'm Nick Schwert. Travis Goff had his introductory press conference earlier today. We'll let you hear some of that as well as your next opportunity to register for RCST Trivia. That's coming up next. Get your car washed because it's probably dirty right now. Whether it's, you know, washing all the germs out, you want to get obviously the germs out of your car, but also you want it to look really nice. Go to Tommy's Express Car Wash. It's wash, rinse, repeat with Tommy's. And guess what? They have an app. It's the Tommy Club app. So download it. I know you have a smartphone, so you're going to be able to download apps. You don't have a flip phone if you're listening to this podcast. I'm just assuming that. And if you do, more power to you. But if you do, 
then you're missing out on this great deal. Because if you download the Tommy Club app today, you're going to enjoy endless washing for one low price. Endless washing for one low price at Tommy's Express Car Wash. That's unlimited car washes, unlimited clean, shiny, and dry. Unlimited use of exclusive app lane at Tommy's. Unlimited access to all the Tommy's locations. And there are a lot of them. Unlimited guest service. Most importantly, unlimited happiness. That's a Tommy's Express Car Wash. All right, so we've got your next opportunity to register for RCST Trivia. If you didn't hear the announcement yesterday, RCST Trivia is back, and it begins next Monday, April 12th. We've got so many awesome prizes. We've got a 65-inch flat screen. We've got a cooler. We've got golf balls. We've got gift cards galore, championship trophy, custom championship trophy, Thanks to Jayhawk Trophy, um, T-shirts, hats, so many different things to give away. And the prizes are cumulative. So, like, you'll start racking up prizes once you get to the Sweet 16. If you if you make it to the Sweet 16, obviously you, you have to make it to the Sweet 16 to win. But if you win, let me just give you everything you'll get if you win. I'm going to do this rapid fire. If you win, here's everything you're going to get. You'll get a 65-inch, I'll, I'll go I'll reverse order. $20 to CBD of Lawrence. You get a custom RCST t-shirt. You get $40 to Hawaiian Bros. You get $25 to 23rd Street Brewery. You'll get a custom RCST Adidas hat from River Rat Print. You'll get a toppling Goliath pint glass plus a toppling Goliath hat. You'll get a four-pack of tickets to Sporting Kansas City game plus a jersey. You'll get a $50 gift card to 23rd Street Brewery. You'll get two dozen RCST logo Vice golf balls. So these aren't the cheap golf balls. These are nice golf balls. You get two dozen of them. You'll get another jersey from Sporting Kansas City. This one, a custom Sporting Kansas City jersey. You'll get a championship trophy from Jayhawk Trophy. You'll get a Grizzly Cooler from Toppling Goliath. And you'll get a 65-inch flat screen TV. You will get all of that. All of it. That's items from nine different sponsors. If... You win it all. And it starts next Monday, RCST Trivia competing head-to-head against other contestants live on Rock Chalk Sports Talk to try and figure out who knows more about KU hoops. And it's all going down next week. We're going to give you a chance to register. We did this yesterday. We did it on the podcast. We've still got some spots available. Here's all you have to do if you want to register. Text the words RCST Trivia to 785-843-843. 1321. Simple as that. Text RCST Trivia to 785-843-1321 and you are in. It is that simple. We'll give you an automated response that'll tell you what you need to do and what steps you need to take to get in, but it's that simple. Text RCST Trivia to 785-843-1321 and you are in. What if we get a text from Travis Goff. What if Travis Goff texts right now and says, I want in RCST trivia? Is he eligible? I think so because he, well, of course he's eligible. Why wouldn't he be eligible? We never said anything about uh, university employees not being eligible. The guy is a KU grad. He's from Kansas, lifelong KU fan. I'm sure he knows his Kansas hoops. What seed would you give him? That's the thing. I don't like know anything personally about him. I've never hung out with him, so... I don't know. Mm. He'd get a top four seed. Just off clout alone, huh? Yeah, but like, okay, let's say he was facing our defending champ, Isaac. Who are you favoring? 
Isaac. Exactly. Agreed. Isaac's proven himself, yeah. you know? It's as simple as that. Again, text us, RCST Trivia to 785-843-1321 if you would like to register for RCST Trivia starting next Monday. So Travis Goff was introduced today as the new Kansas Athletic Director had his press conference. You know, this gets to be a, a reoccurring theme anytime somebody's hired for a position like this. We always say, did they win the press conference? And most of the time, guys do. Because if Travis Goff were to sit up there in front of a microphone and not be able to string sentences together, we would say, wait a minute, are you sure? Are you sure this is the guy you want? But of course, that wasn't the case. Travis Goff was incredible today. Um, He showed an ability to uh, think on his feet. Uh, He spoke quickly. He spoke eloquently. And he was just really sharp, really impressive. And that's what you would expect for a 41-year-old deputy AD from Northwestern that KU plucked and said, we want you to be our guy. Now, if you wanted to criticize him, and I don't see this as a criticism, and I'll tell you why, but he didn't really answer many of the questions in a straightforward manner. He didn't give you explicit answers on uh, Bill Self's contract extension, on the NCAA uh, case, which he was hardly even asked about, to be quite frank. He didn't give a ton of answers on the coaching search, what he's going to do with Emmett Jones, if he's going to move forward and hire somebody else, what sort of qualities he's looking for in the Kansas coach, why he thinks the next coach can have success when the last four haven't. All of those questions were asked to him, and he didn't really give great, detailed, specific answers to any of them. So if you wanted to walk away from that and say, man, this guy just sort of dodged the questions and, and sort of repeated the question back to you, That's not okay. You could say that if you wanted to, but the reason why I wouldn't do that is because it's probably exactly what he needed to do. Because a lot of the answers he gave were, we need to evaluate, we need to look at things, I'm going to rely upon the people around here, I'm going to rely upon the people who are already here, who already have knowledge of the program, I'm going to learn as much as I possibly can and try to make informed decisions moving forward. It's a far cry from what we heard three years ago when Jeff Long, at the same building, was introduced as the new AD because Jeff Long came in with a lot of answers. Jeff Long came in with a lot of solutions and he relied upon his vast experience working in collegiate athletics that he knew he was going to find a way to fix football. I'm going to fix football. We're going to do it. That's not what you got from Travis Goff today because what happens when you do stuff like that? You have something to be held to and it's okay for a guy who's on the second day on his job to not have definitive answers to the biggest issues and questions that he's going to be facing over the coming months and years. And as we know, with any other athletic director who's come through, the big question has been, much as it was with Jeff Long, how are you going to fix football? Well, first, we have to know what the timeline is going to look like. Scott Chasen, 24-7 Sports, ask him that. There's this exchange. Uh, Do you have a, a timeline or even just a plan uh, in terms of evaluating the football program, what you want to do, obviously interim coach, head coach, and uh, do you have a kind of a path for what that looks like? Yeah, had a, a great opportunity yesterday. Really wanted to prioritize this to, to get out to practice, to observe Coach Jones and the staff. The energy was incredible. And it's been well documented for me coming in, and then I was able to witness it with my own eyes, just what a great job Coach Jones and that staff has done, keeping this group together, keeping them united and having the kind of energy you need to have in spring football. 
And so that was really neat. I, I had a chance to meet then one-on-one with Coach Jones and with his entire staff. Uh, I guess I would say this, Scott, what I said to them is where, where we're at exactly on day two. I come in open-minded. I come in wanting to listen, learn, absorb, understand where we're at with this football program. There's a plan, and it's more about the win and the understanding of how to go forward in that plan. So it's a lot about, like, right, like, you don't know exactly what the timeline is. It's just that we're going to develop a plan and we're going to figure out, you know, how to execute that plan. But it's interesting because the question I wanted to ask him was that, you know, every single person who takes that job is going to say, I I can fix football. Like, I have the ability to do so. I am going to put a big big emphasis on doing so. But I think it's a really difficult question to answer how you're going to do it or why you think you can do what the previous guy couldn't or the previous two guys couldn't because Shan Zenger and Jeff Long thought they made good football hires. They were not good football hires. Everybody's going to love a guy first day on the job. And I don't have any reason to say that, that Travis Goff won't be good at this. I just think it, it will all come down to what you do with that football coach. And that's why I asked him what I just said. Why do you think, why do you have confidence that it will be different this time around with you making the hire of the new football coach? You're inheriting an athletic department that's seen four full-time football coaches come and go over the last 11 years. I'm just curious, as you sort of begin to assess the direction you'd like to see the program go, what gives you confidence that whoever is the next person to lead the program can have more success than his predecessors? Thanks, Nick. I think we've, at the University of Kansas, learned a lot over the years, and building football programs is incredibly difficult. It's certainly difficult in the Big 12 Conference, one of the best in the, in the country. And it's certainly diff- difficult, even more so, without any kind of... I, I have kind of witnessed from afar the things that I've been able to see at the places I've been. And then what I know to be incredibly clearly the commitment from Chancellor Gerard, from the leadership, from the staff and the group that's here to build this thing in the right way. That's, that's all the confidence I need coming in. And that confidence is incredibly high. And regardless of which direction you do decide to go, are there any unique characteristics or qualifications that stand out to you in terms of something that you feel like would make a successful head coach at Kansas? There, there certainly are assumptions around that, what things I've observed and I think are applicable anywhere, right? So there's what's applicable anywhere in terms of building a program and then what's important and what I'm trying to really be focused on in these days ahead is what's going to be applicable here at the University of Kansas, and that's where I need to, need to listen, absorb, before charting that path forward. I did. I, I didn't. That wasn't the answer I was hoping to get, but I respect the answer. Like I was hoping he was going to say, "I want somebody who has this sort of personality trait. I want somebody who has this type of qualification. I want somebody." That's the thing that Jeff Long did when he went out and set out to find the Kansas coach. What did he say? He said, we need someone who has head coaching experience. This job is too big to learn on the fly. A little easier when you already knew who the candidate was going to be, and then you could just describe Yeah, it's a, lot easier. it's a lot easier when you already made the hire. By the, way, by the way, did he call you Dick, not Nick? I think he called me Nick. Thanks, Nick. Why'd you slow, slow down, it down? Because you can uh, distinguish it more. Thanks, Nick. I, I, I think that that's just reverberation from the microphone. I think he knows... My name's Nick. 
I don't know. I said it I'm pretty clearly. I spoke it pretty clearly. And by the way, nobody 30 years old that goes by Dick. Dick Clark. Who? Dick Clark. Is he 30 years old? He's famous. Older than that. Way old. Is he even alive? Is he the guy who used to do the New Year's Eve thing? I think so. Why are you comparing him to me? And his name is Dick. Isn't Tony Bennett's dad Dick Bennett? Old. <laughs> Nobody looks at a 30-year-old we'll and one. say, did he say Nick or Dick? Let's go with Dick. <laughs> That's literally never happened. All right, we'll have more on Travis Goff when we talk to Jesse Newell of the Kansas City Star. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Could your business use a little push right now? Need help getting the word out there that you're hiring? Do you just want to let people know how great of a product you have? Well, you can advertise with Rock Chalk Sports Talk and or the Best of RCST podcast. For more information, contact djohnson at gpmnow.com. That's djohnson at gpmnow.com. All right, we got a weird show today, but it's still a Wednesday and we don't take a single day off. Though we did take Monday off and we are taking tomorrow off because of Royals games. But we're not taking today off because of one big reason. And that is the NFL whip around. First up, if then I give you the if scenario, you tell me the then. Now, Sammy Watkins might be trying to steal your shine a little bit here. What do you mean? He said that if receivers can get open, then Lamar Jackson can be elite. So I'll ask you the same question. If the receivers can get open, then if the Ravens receivers. I Ravens receivers. Yes. Well, who all makes up the Ravens receiving core? Sammy we know Watkins. Sammy Watkins. We know Marquise Brown. Yeah. Uh... Des Bryant still there? No, he's gone. Devin Duvarney. Uh, Willie Sneed. No, he's gone. Anquan Bolden. No, long gone. Okay. We have that Miles Boykin kid from Notre Dame from a couple years ago. There you go. It's not the best crop of receiving talent I've ever seen in the world. Um, but I would say it would help. Receivers getting open would certainly help. Would That's certainly help. It'd be good. Then positive. things would be better. Okay. I, I don't know if, if that's the most groundbreaking that comment I've Lamar ever heard. Can, be elite. can Lamar be elite if the receivers are open? Well, you know what made Lamar elite the year he won the MVP was that you had Hayden Hurst. It was those two tight end sets that teams really had trouble guarding. And because that was so effective, what happened to Hayden Hurst? Went and got a big contract from the Falcons in the offseason. They don't have anybody. I mean, I think they want Marquise Brown to be that guy, but they just don't have that guy who you can chuck it to 10, 15 times a game because they're constantly creating separation downfield. Marquise Brown's still young, and he's shown flashes. Sammy Watkins, I mean, he he might be the best receiver, and he may get a ton of attention, but we've seen it, man. We know that Sammy is not going to be a 16-game player. Certainly not a 17-game player. They're adding an extra game just for one more game that Sammy Watkins can be injured. And I'm not even trying to make fun of him. It's just facts. Like, look at his history. He has been an injury-plagued player. So, uh, yeah, I guess that will help, but I'm not sure it's enough, man. You need more. You need more receivers. Maybe they'll draft somebody. If Aaron Rodgers hosts Jeopardy and also continues playing football, then preface to this is that Aaron Rodgers just hosted Jeopardy, or at least that's when the episode aired yesterday. 
Um, I don't know if you saw it. There was the one attendee who kind of trolled him a little bit. Asked him why they kicked the field goal. Yeah, he didn't know the answer, so he just wrote that down. Um, but apparently, previously when Alex Trebek, Trebek was hosting it, like he said that he only had to record, it was like 41 days worth of work for his entire year. You know, it was just they filmed 41 days. And that was it. I wonder how many shows they can knock out in one setting. Exactly. So Aaron Rodgers was asked about this, and he said, I think I could do both. I think I could be a quarterback. I calculated it all up between game days, practices. It's like 180 days of work or something. If I do 40, 50 days of this, I still have time to kill. Wow. So He's still going to be bored. He needs another show. If Aaron Rodgers does continue to host Jeopardy and also continue playing football then, it's going to open the door for lots of other guys trying to do lots of other stuff. Yeah, Aaron Rodgers is really good at it, too, by the way, because he's really smart and well uh, articulate. He's articulative. Articu- he's, he articulates He articulate. Well. He articulate better than me. He's really good, man. I think if he did that, there'll be a snowball effect, but like, who is going to be the next one? Travis Kelsey already did a reality television show, but that didn't, I, I doubt that required 41 days no. of film. I also love like the uh, dichotomy of those two, like Aaron Rodgers hosting Jeopardy, Travis Kelsey hosting like a reality TV Where show. Where just like, a bunch of chicks want to get <laughs> naked and ride him. So, yeah, man, I don't, I don't know how many opportunities are out there for athletes, but there's, there's going to be a handful that will probably take advantage of it. I also I love that it just completely dispels the idea that oh you got it if you're while you're while somebody else is while you, while you're not working somebody else is right you took the day off somebody else got up and got better today Aaron Rodgers is like yeah no they didn't because <laughs> I hosted Jeopardy for 41 days and I'm still better than you yeah I think it shows like and, and we're continuing to progress this way that just this idea that like. Oh, you can only be an athlete. You have to do athletic things every day. It's like you need mental break days as well, and I think that works out for Aaron Rodgers. But let's say he continues to host Jeopardy and, like, the play starts to fall off. People are just going to automatically blame that, even though it's probably not true because he can probably record everything in the offseason. Okay, next segment. Are they good? Carolina just traded for Sam Darnold, gave up a sixth-round pick next this year, gave up some extra picks higher in the draft uh, in 2022. Is Carolina good now? I think they're better, right? That much is true. But that's not the name of the question. Are they better? No, it's are they good? I think so. I like the pieces the Panthers have on offense. If you can have Christian McCaffrey go out, Mike Davis comes in and is while not quite as effective as Christian McCaffrey, still more effective than most running backs in the league, it's clear you got a nice system. That would, to me, indicate you've got a good offensive line, you've got a good offensive system. I love the crop of receivers. Now, uh, Curtis Samuel is gone. He signs a deal with uh, Washington. But you still have Robbie Anderson, and you still have... DJ Moore. DJ Moore. So, I like the offensive pieces, and while... I don't know what to think of Sam Darnold. I think two things. I think the Panthers are better now because I I do think Sam Darnold is better than Teddy Bridgewater. I also think this is a better opportunity for Sam Darnold to succeed than he had in New York. The the storyline here is that it's a make-or-break year. If you can't find success, I get it. New year, new offense. But, I mean, think about it. With Joe Brady coming in and running that offense, the former OC for LSU with Joe Burrow, 
Like, things looked really nice. Things looked really nice. Robbie Anderson looked like a pro bowler, man. If you can't find success in that offense that seems to be very quarterback friendly, you're probably not going to find success anywhere else. This is Sam Darnold's last chance to prove that, yeah, the hype about me coming out of USC was real. Maybe you'll never be that guy, but at that point, that's not the question. At this point, we're wondering, can you be a serviceable starting caliber NFL quarterback? He has a chance to prove that now. Yeah, and I think they made a few moves in the offseason to help strengthen the defense, which was kind of a weakness last year. You drafted Derek Brown in the first round. We'll see what they do uh, with their draft this year. I kind of like the way they're trending. Last year, you know, there's different levels of, like, being a bad football team. There's just, oh, my gosh, we are awful. That was kind of the level of, you know, if you have your uh, Jets type of team who's going to go 2-14 and 14 or something, even though they beat a couple playoff teams. Then there's that level of, no, we're just, like, really bad. Then there's a level of, like, we're bad, like, the record's not good, but we're hanging around. You know, we hung around with the Chiefs. We hung around with a lot of these other teams. That's kind of the place that I put the Panthers last year. And a lot of the time it's from that bin of teams that usually if there's going to be like a worst to first finish, which usually happens maybe once, twice a year, or at least from worst to a playoff team or wild card or something, they would be one that I'm actually circling. And I do like this Sam Darnold pickup. I agree. I think he's better than Teddy Bridgewater. I think he'll do well with them. The question to me becomes, like you said, this is a make or break year for Sam Darnold. You know what the most likely scenario that it's going to happen, though? It's not that he's going to be really bad and they're going to be like, okay, we know we can move on. It's not that he's going to be really, really good where they're going to be like, we found our future quarterback. It's probably going to be somewhere in the middle where it's like, yeah, this guy might be like a league average quarterback, like, or I don't know, somewhere in that range. And we're going to win eight, nine games, maybe go nine and seven with the expanded playoffs, or I guess nine and eight this year with the 17 game schedule. And we might compete for that last wild card or we might make the playoffs. And we're going to have the same decision that the Bears had yeah. to come to this past season. Except, I think Darnold's better than Trubisky. Yeah, exactly. So, I don't think they're good, but they are better, and they are interesting. And those are the, the doors you got to kick in before you can get to good. So, baby steps. Okay. Next up, is this good? Josh Allen's thoughts on the franchise tag. Quote, ew. Yeah. Uh, Context, please. So Kyle Brandt of NFL Network asked Allen to respond. He just said to the word franchise tag. You know, it's like a therapy session or something. He just replied, ew. When I show you this, how does it make right. you feel? He said, ew. He said, I don't think it's great for the team nor the player. Again, I need to do more research on it. But if you look at the guys that have been tagged in the past couple years, as far as quarterback position goes, it was Dak and Kirk Cousins. And at the end of the day, you could make the case that they should have just done the deal the year prior or a couple years prior. Oh, so he's saying franchise tag is bad to the point where just Everybody. take just take the first deal they offer you. I think he's saying that it's just like pointless because those guys, even like in Dak's case, you got injured and you still got a long-term deal. So just give them the long-term deal to begin with if it's a quarterback. Well, they were offering long-term deal, but it, the money was what they yeah, haggled over, right? That's what it's always going to come down to. Do you agree? To. Are franchise tags you? Is that good? Is um, that a good thought? No, I don't think that franchise tags are ew. It's, it, listen, man, we can talk about franchise tags as how they're screwing players. You know what franchise tags do a lot of times is they give players way more money than they're worth, even if it's just for one year. And yeah, I, I get it. Like the team will say, we'll bite the bullet and overpay this guy for one year because long term it makes the most sense to us. 
Whereas there may be other players who are deserving of a contract extension. And because you guys are haggling over a couple million dollars here or there, you give them a franchise tag until you can just sort of kick the can down the road and figure it out later. But again, like that, that, that's you're talking about millions and millions of dollars that guys are getting who to, to be paid as a top five player at that position who are not top five players at that position. So he can say whatever he wants. Josh Allen's probably going to get franchise tagged is all I read <laughs> from this. Is like, I lock it up. That his agent's going to call him and be like, oh, sorry, Dude. Josh, you got franchise. And he's just going to, yuck, you! Ew. Just drop his phone. Yeah, exactly. It'll happen. Better than Kirk Cousins, league average quarterback. I mentioned, hey, Sam Darnold might end up being in that range. Is Sam Darnold with Carolina better than Kirk Cousins? I don't think so. There's too much of a gap that he has to jump to get to Kirk Cousins' level. I would say this. If Sam Darnold with Carolina became not better than, but as good as Kirk Cousins, that would be a massive leap and a best-case scenario for him. I mean, his best season so far, I guess you would say, was his sophomore year. In 13 games, he threw for 19 touchdowns and 13 interceptions, completed 62% of his passes. That's not great. But again, it was the New York Jets, and there's not much reason to expect him to be great there. You are out of the stink, the stench that is the Jets organization. Now you are playing for a competent organization with a fun, young offensive coordinator, if he can bring the best out of him. If Sam Darnold can become a 28-touchdown, 12-interception guy, would that not be a massive increase? Would that not be league average sort of territory for him? I mean, Kirk Cousins... Despite what you think about him, his statistics are always more impressive than you think they are. Like you watch him, and that's when you say he's league average. But he can put up some pretty nice stat lines. Like last year, 35 touchdowns, 13 interceptions. Do you think there's any chance that Sam Darnold's thrown for 35 touchdowns this year? No. Seems like a lot, especially on a team that has Christian McCaffrey. Well, maybe. Maybe he'll throw 12 touchdown passes to Christian McCaffrey. That could help a little bit. Uh, Teddy Bridgewater. I guess he'll be on a new team or he'll be a backup. Is he better than Kirk Cousins? No way, man. No way. Yeah. What if he was with the Chiefs? Is Patrick Mahomes still on the Chiefs? No. In this scenario, Patrick Mahomes is like, Teddy, take They the trade road. a one-for-one. One. They yeah. trade a one-for-one one yeah, trade. Teddy Bridgewater uh, for Patrick Mahomes. Nothing else included in the deal. Uh, no, I would still take Kirk Cousins. I, I mean, you're the one who got me on the Teddy Bridgewater really isn't that good train. And you look, and it's, it wasn't even about the fact that he, there was a ton of data to suggest he was terrible. It's that there was no data to suggest he was good, right? He won five games as the starter for the Saints, Saints. and that was enough for them to say, boom, you're our guy. If, if We need to stop watching teams make decisions based off five-game sample sizes. They, the, the Broncos moved forward with Drew Locke because of a five-game sample size. The Niners decided that Jimmy Garoppolo was their guy because of a five-game sample. We we must stop doing this because nobody is making solid, rational decisions by locking guys up because they had a good five-game run. Who's older? Panthers quarterback, Teddy Bridgewater. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. What? I went 5-0 and on this last week. I didn't want to mention that. I think I'm 9-1 and last two weeks. Yeah, it's been a good run for you. This is like the preseason, though. It's the offseason, so does it really count? 
You be the judge. Yes, Panthers quarterback Teddy Bridgewater or Las Vegas running back Kenyon Drake. Um, I'll say Teddy Bridgewater. Teddy is 28. Kenyon Drake, 27. New Titans senior defensive assistant Jim Schwartz mm. or Patriots quarterback coach Jerry Skaplinski. Skaplinski? Shaplinski? I think it's Skaplinski. I, I mean, I know Schwartz has got to be in his 50s. Um, Shaplinski? I mean... I don't know. Uh, just because of um, because I know he's been around, I'll go Jim Schwartz. Jim Schwartz, the same last name you have. <laughs> Incorrect. Find a new slant. Newly released running back Giovanni Bernard or New England offensive tackle Trent Brown. Giovanni Bernard has got to be 29-30. Trent Brown. Where did he go to school? Stanford. He just got traded from Las Vegas to New England. Yeah, I don't know how old he is. Um, I'll say, I'll say, I'll say Trent Brown's older. Ah, first miss in a while. That would have been at least seven straight. Carolina wide receiver Robbie Anderson or Houston offensive tackle Marcus Cannon. I'll say Robbie Anderson's about twenty-eight. Cannon, no clue. I'll go Cannon. Shot out of a cannon. Yeah. All right, three and one. You got another winning week. Seattle defensive end Carlos Dunlap mm. or Rams assistant quarterback coach Zach Robinson. Oh. Oklahoma State fan. Yeah, that's right. I think, who was the first guy? Uh, Carlos Dunlap. I think he's been around for a while. I'll say, you know, he's about 30, 31, 32, maybe older. I'll say Carlos Dunlap older for the win. Mm. Well, I still got the win anyway. Sour note, though, Dan. And last segment of the day. Former Saints and Ravens wide receiver. You actually mentioned What's the name of the segment? Oh, where he at? And where is Willie Sneed at? Dallas. Mm. New Orleans. Mm. Uh, Pittsburgh. Mm. Las Vegas. That's where you at? Yeah. That's okay. That's the NFL whip around. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. So, oddly enough, the last major tournament we had on the PGA Tour was the Masters back in the fall, and it's also the next major we have, except this time it's the regularly scheduled programming, the Masters. In April, this weekend, let's talk about it with our friend from Odds Checker from DraftKings, Jeff Feinberg, joins us once again on the show. Jeff, good to talk to you as always, my man. Uh, When you go back to that Masters in November where we saw different colors, the, the course looked different, the course played different, DJ sort of ran away with it in one of the most dominant Masters performances that we'd seen. How much do you sort of just discard what we saw a few months ago when trying to figure out what to expect this time around. Yeah, I haven't put much stock into it at all. Um, it did seem like the long hitters were really able to uh, have their way with the course in many ways, as long as you were able to keep the ball in play. The course is looking firm and fast right now, but 
Yeah, I've kind of dis- disregarded it. I mean, Dustin Johnson had such an immaculate Masters record coming into last year, uh, a consortium of incredible finishes, like multiple second places, multiple top fives. So, you know, it wasn't surprised as he was the number one player in the world and, and he won the Masters. But I'm not I'm not focused on really anything that happened in November as to how it's going to play out this time around. That's not to say Dustin can't win. So what are you focused on? Are you focused on more of just general course history, course form? How is the Masters unique in sort of how you go about filling out your card and, and pinpointing guys that you're interested in? Yeah, I mean, the reality of the situation is that we're very familiar with the course. The players are very familiar with the course. Unlike other majors, we get to go back here each and every year. Familiarity grows. We can draw trends at Augusta that we simply can't make when trying to forecast the U.S. Open. That's at a different that hadn't been at a course in a decade or last time. Maybe we had a World Golf Championship at this course like six years ago, uh, and we try to to read into that what we will. Um, with the Masters, there are three very key elements that I believe have led to, to the winners, Nick, and that is lead in form. Everybody that has essentially won the Masters has been playing well leading into the Masters. A win is great, but, but you see multiple top fives, like a couple top tens. The lead in form, uh, you don't sort of win at the Masters finding the form. Greens and regulation. Everyone outside of Patrick Reed dominated in the greens and regulation category. Guy like Tiger Woods essentially won the Masters with his irons. In many ways, Dustin Johnson did as well. You win the Masters, it seems like, with your ability to just not have to be forced to scramble. There's one outlier there. Patrick Reed is the only guy in modern history who wasn't top six in the field for their greens and regulation that week. And that sort of makes sense. He's got this incredible moxie of getting up and down from everywhere to begin with, but he certainly had to rely on it to outduel Patrick Reed. And last but not least, or pro- definitely least and probably overrated, is a semblance of a positive Masters experience. You don't need to win. But it, you don't, you know, you didn't even need to come in top five, what have you. We saw guys like Patrick Reed. We saw guys like Danny Willett. We saw guys like Bubba Watson in recent memory on Bubba's first win, win here without, you know, a tremendous long running track record or even anything maybe better than even a 30th place in their initial visits to the Masters. But by all accounts, when they reflected on it or when they spoke about it, they seem to have deemed it as an incredibly positive experience. So it doesn't seem like we ever find a winner outside of those. I mean, and that's disregarding all that other sort of math that says no one outside of like world 16, even has a chance to win in many regards. All right. So let's start with somebody I think kind of applies to what you were just talking about, or I guess he, he sort of, you've got two things conflicting with one another with Bryson, because this is a guy who's really hot right now won the Arnold Palmer, took third at the players, yet he doesn't have a ton of great success at the Masters. With him specifically, do you have to sort of separate the old Bryson versus the new Bryson when trying to look at course history? I will I will fight back on that because he does, you know, based on past champions, I, I would argue he might have done enough. Even, you know, he even led, or was he not like an overnight leader as an amateur? 
To me, yeah. that would rank of an, at enough of a positive experience here at the Masters. And I like Bryson a lot this week. His, his greens and his iron play has been outstanding. We all know he can drive the ball, but his iron play has been outstanding. In his last two stroke play events, where it's going to disregard the match play, he gained over three and four strokes with his irons. Of all the elite pot players, super elites as I like to call them, granted we can now quantify that Jordan at the Masters is probably a super elite. Uh, he is the best putter. The stats bear that he is the best putter of these guys. Granted, his Augusta putting stats aren't great, but for me, the first year he puts well at Augusta, it's not going to be like a lead in second place, Nick. He's going to win. He's going to win. Mm-hmm. He's going to he's going to dominate off the tee. He's going to do what he needs to do with his irons because they're in great form, and he's going to putt because of all the great players that I deem a super elite. The stats bear he is the best putter. I don't know whether that might surprise people because you see a miss putts on TV, but that's only because he's putting from in close so much. You know, Justin Thomas, another guy in this range I love, or I would have considered betting, of the guys I deem super elites, he is the worst putter. He will, when he putts, he wins. There is no, like, middle ground for a guy like Justin Thomas. Um, If he putts this week, he probably will win, but I am, I don't want to bank on a guy at such a short price who is the worst putter of the guys grouped around him at the Masters. Yeah, it's tough because you go through those super elites as you dub them, and so many of them have really good course history at the Masters, which, I mean, like you said, it makes sense. You're playing it year yeah, after year. And we're getting, and sorry to interrupt, but like, oh. it does seem like we get, a, like the last two winners here have been chalk. Dustin Johnson was chalk. Uh, Tiger Woods was chalk. He, at least his betting price was chalk, and, and he was Tiger. But we've also gotten guys farther down the board, like Sergio, like Reed, like Willett, like Baba. Um, so it seems like it's a 50-50 proposition almost that one of those super six will win versus the field. What do you think would be the best storyline, though? Like, What would be the, the easiest thing to get behind as a fan for what could happen this weekend? Okay, everyone does come in with with a storyline. So it is really exciting. A lot of those top players. I enjoyed Jordan winning last week. I feel like if he wins this week, it would bother me. (laughs) He starts to annoy me again to a certain extent. Um, That being said, I can't deny it would be the story. Yeah. I mean, like just the stuff I did, the content I put out, the podcast I do, Pat Mayo, we we're setting our numbers this week that we wouldn't have Jordan Spieth put gasoline onto the Masters, and 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 it probably needed it because you know Tiger is not going to be there, and guys like Justin Thomas don't move the needle, and guys like John Rom don't move the needle, um, and Rory's nice, but he doesn't move the needle. There's only you know only Jordan and Bryson sort of would become like, really have broken through. Um, and for different reasons. You know, Bryson is like this sideshow that doesn't get enough credit for probably how much of a strategic golfer he would win he is. But I guess it would have to be Bryson or Jordan, at least of those guys near the top, and that the mainstream would really take and run with. And why do you think Jordan's been able to do it? He's not the most dynamic personality, and his game isn't, super flashy yet you're right like when you bring up his name and storylines like he had the golf world and even the casual golf fans 
talking last week by winning the Valero Texas Open, Jeff. Like, what is it about him that people have been able to sort of latch on to, even though he hasn't been contending over the past three years? Well, I think it's part of the reason that he frustrates me so much because he was winning those majors, but like when he had like three majors before Dustin Johnson has won, it really bought like, because like we'd all agree, like Dustin Johnson is so much more talented than this guy. Like, what is going on here? This doesn't make any sense. This guy's just such a luck sack. I made all those jokes forever, like, oh, Jordan and his magic beam. Because he gets up and down from everywhere. Despite the fact when it was going well, he's an immaculate tee to green player whose irons are some of the best in the world. And yes, he did just win the Texas Valero Open versus a very weak field. But he's been playing outstanding for months. Like, pretty much going back to Torrey Pines, he has been playing great. So, I'm... Like I, I sort of have this reputation of being anti-Jordan, despite it got he got so he fell so far down, you know the the sort of the rankings, and you know he hadn't won in, in like nearly four years that it that that became the big story that I started cheering for him again. I enjoyed seeing him win last weekend. I've enjoyed seeing him play great golf, but if he starts winning again, he's gonna. Like this, the, the the real big events. I feel like he's going to annoy me again, real quick. But he relate. He's relatable. A, he's a real good guy. Yeah. Um, but he's relatable in the sense that he hits the ball. Other than his ability to make par, we're all just enamored in his ability to to do what he does because we all, I think, agree that. He doesn't have the natural talent of Justin, of Justin, of Bryson. Like, he is literally pulling something out there. Like, he's literally in a magician-type sense when he does win events and outduels guys like that. What do you make of Brooks this week? Obviously, he had the knee surgery a few weeks ago. Um, I don't know how much of the stuff that he's been posting since then is for attention, if it's a smokescreen, if he's just having fun with people. I'm sure you saw the pictures of him. Uh, lining up his putt with the weird sort of uh, legs sticking out without the mobility in the knee. Are you going anywhere near Brooks? What do you make of, of his chances to compete this week? Okay, I have bet Brooks Kepka. Okay. I got a 32-1 to 1, um, on him last week, and I get it. Because in trying to figure out who's going to win, like I'm not doing a top five, a top ten, I'm trying to figure who's going to win. And I accept the fact that this guy can come in dead last or he comes in second place. It's going to mean the exact same thing. <laughs> so Brooks Kepka at a number, I just think it was tremendous value because I also got this feeling last week in my own head. I'm like making this up that he was playing us for possum. Like, yeah. it's all about Jordan now. You guys can talk about whoever you want. This injury almost works out perfectly. And I debated it on my show. Because a month ago, I would have loved, like, Victor Hovland, Sunday in. They were striking the ball so beautifully. I thought they were setting up perfectly to come here at Augusta. But in the last month, both of their irons have really been trending the wrong way. Um, and should I feel worse about them than a guy like Brooks who hasn't played, who did win, who is just such a, we know he's a natural-born winner. And I'll say this. I was able to connect with somebody who is very close to someone on the grounds with him in Augusta. And the quote they got back after, like, glad-handing the guy, like, asking how your family is, like, getting right to business, yeah. like, how's Brooks? <laughs> the quote I got back was, 
And it was sent to me, a screen grab of it is, this pony is ready to run hard. And that's all I need. And he might come, like, second last. But I don't care. Like, it's Brooks Kepka for an outright pick at the Masters at anything over 25 to 1. I feel like I would be into just because. Um, Yeah. That's Uh, happened before, though, hasn't it? Like, where Brooks, for whatever reason, whether it's an injury or he's playing poorly, the numbers on him start to dip below that elite threshold. And if it does, are you just saying that is your automatic hammer? If it gets below that number, you're touching Brooks Kepka at a major. Yeah, I guess every situation is different. And I really wanted some level of confirmation that he was, um, like, somewhat healthy. Because he wasn't even committed to the field till about a week ago. But I think he was literally, like, I just started also feeling he's just playing us possum. Like, it's perfect for Brooks. If it wins, if it if if he wins, it just builds the myth of him so much more, like off of this minor injury. But if he loses, it also allows him this, or if he doesn't perform well, it allows him in many ways this mental like free pass. I don't know. But I think it all sets up well for Brooks to really just be, be Brooks this week. And I'm willing to take that shot at, at that number. And of course he has, played really well at before the year Tiger won. Him and Dustin were right there, right there if Tiger flinched. We're talking to Jeff Feinberg, odds checker, Mayo Media Network, for a few more minutes here on RCST. You know, it's it's almost like there's this natural separation when you look at the betting board, not just in terms of value, but in terms of, you know, going back to those storylines. And when you get past those super elites, Jeff, I think there's a really interesting crop of guys who feel like they're on the precipice. Like, they're one big win away from all of a sudden us saying, you know what, maybe they do belong in that category. When you look at that next tier, and maybe Morikawa's already there. He's already got the major to his name. But when you look at the guys like, um, you mentioned Hovland, you mentioned Sungjae, Daniel Berger. Webb's got a major, but this is the best Webb Simpson I think most of us have ever seen. Um, even guys like Fitzpatrick and Scheffler and, and Hatton. Oh, yeah. Any of those guys who feel like they, to you, like they could be on the cusp of, of knocking down that door and then maybe changing the way we talk about him from here on out? I think you're 100% onto something. For starters, all reports. For, if you got to watch the reports out of Augusta a week ago, two weeks ago, or wow, it's looking tough, it's looking firm, it's looking fast. And then if you got to ch- catch any of the lady amateurs play there last week, you're like, whoa, like it does look like it's firm. It does look like it's fast. And then we see the guys this week in the pictures that they're putting out, and some of the greens are purple. And I don't know whether they're dependent on rain coming, slowing it down, but let me say this. When Jordan won last time, and when he set a record, a record score, Danny Willett came through the hole the next year at a very low winning score. I should know it off the top of my head because it's probably the only reason I got into doing this and that we're talking. But, but what was that winning score? Minus six? Minus five? Danny Willett. Dustin Johnson set a number last year, a new winning number. And they don't like to see that. They don't like to see that. There's a lot of talk, and we'll get there going forward. And if Bryson takes his plate down, the ball rollback, every equipment discussion rollback will all be brought in. But you better believe the guys in charge over there are going to do everything they can to protect that place, especially after Dustin set a new scoring record last year based on the winning score we saw last time. 
So it makes a lot of sense that that stuff's purple, firm, and fast. And you named a lot of guys. You named a lot of guys that are right for it. Webb's got his major, but let's just look at it. Last year alone, Nick, who won those majors before Dustin at Chalk? Bryson, what was he, 28-30 to 1? Yeah. Morikawa, what was he, 35-40 to 1? That is a sweet spot range for first-time major champions. Winning your first major under 25 to 1, you've got to be a real special player. I mean, that's, in my era of betting, like, era, my time in sort of doing <laughs> podcasts and betting golf, like, a couple guys did pull that off. Dustin Johnson won at Oakmont. Probably by the time Jordan got that Masters win, it was probably right around 18 or 20 because he was second place the year before. Dustin, jo- uh, Dustin Johnson, yeah. Uh, Jason Day, when he won his PGA championship. And it's, gonna be, it's a big ask for a guy like John Rahm or Patrick Cantley and Z- Xander Shoffley, sort of under 20 to 1 or that number for a first major. Even JT, when he won his, was like 50 to 1 at a PGA championship. And the Masters, as I've already mentioned, Patrick Reed, Sergio Garcia in that like 40 to 60 to 1 range, first time major champions. So that is the sweet spot range. I have targeted Daniel Berger. I really like Paul Casey, but you named a couple guys that are so live this week, be it a Maddie Fitzpatrick, be it a Terrell Hatton. Um, yeah, so this is, this is that sweet spot betting range where guys that like to bet like a handful of bodies I uh, like to throw their darts right here because a lot of the stats show this is where the first-time major champions come from and first-time Augusta champions can come from. Berger's the interesting one to me, Jeff, because dating back to the resumption of the PGA Tour, has there ever been a point when, when Daniel Berger wasn't one of the five best players? Like, over the past 12 months, he has been a top-five player in the world. And I feel like if he gets that major victory, we'll all... Even if you didn't bet on him, if we didn't, and I know you just said that, that you like Berger this week, but I love him. He's yeah, one of those guys, him. right, where you'd look back and say, "Yeah, we kind of the, the the proof was already there. We knew he was playing at this level, and now he just validated it." Yeah, when I did a season like preview, like we did a fantasy draft show, and and we debated Berger, and it was like, which Berger is it? Is it going to be the guy that um, sort of disappeared for a bit with an injury? Oh, or is it going to be this guy that's been, you know, playing well? And I, like, put my flag in the ground on him. But, no, he's going to be a preeminent, like, U.S. Ryder Cup player. Like, that is the type of player he is. And I look at this betting board, and I love Patrick Cantley this week. And so many metrics point to Patrick Cantley this week. And there's reason to love Xander Shoffley this week. But I feel like when all is said and done, those guys are, like, 20, 22, 25. Daniel Berger at, at that high 30s, 40s. To me, he's the same guy, and I think we'll look at their careers pretty much identically. And and I believe I think Berger deserves to be with those guys. I like that the books don't acknowledge him as such, but that is to me where his talent level is um, is closer to than the forty to one players he's surrounded with on the betting boards. Before I let you go, Jeff, is there anybody? And I know we. we... There's a plenty of history to suggest uh, it's not going to be somebody, you know, 50th, 60th in the world rankings who, who wins this thing. But uh, we saw a, a few surprises back in November of guys who were just sort of hanging around. Is there anybody that you would look at in that 100 or above range that maybe you're not necessarily expecting to win, but uh, that you wouldn't be surprised by seeing have a, a really good weekend? Uh, yeah, there are a couple, certainly. I think Matthew Wallace uh, struck the ball better than Jordan Speed did last week. And his game has been trending in the right direction all year. 
Um, and if it plays a very difficult, I think it will set up for Wallace. Will he win? Probably not. But there are some ultra competitive um, odds with the sports books, and, and they offer the, the the placings. And I think he could certainly catch one of them. And and certainly, I think Matt Kuchar, a guy that always seems to play. Augusta well he's a form player he is in form at the present moment and he and I'm not expecting Kuchar to win I think that ask would be quite enormous um but he catches my eye deep down there uh and another guy I can't not mention would be Max Homa Max Homa has a lot of guys that have won Riviera have won at the Masters and a lot of people think Quail Hollow is a comp course to Augusta. And Max Homa has won at both of them. He's a very, very confident young man. Uh, to, you'd, to wish you'd have his confidence would be, would be great. But, but guys like Mike Weir, Phil Mickelson, Sergio Garcia, uh, I assume Tiger's won at Riviera, so I'll just say Tiger Woods, <laughs> but a, a Bubba Watson. So a consortium of modern Masters winners have won at Riviera. And that reason alone feels like it makes um, Homa worth staring at as uh, maybe a fancy placing or head-to-head or, or a pool pick or DraftKings, whatever you think. He outdueled Tony Finau, who and I hope you know, I'm hoping for the best for Tony, but we'll see. But yeah, Homa got that big Riviera win, so he's definitely a lot of people think he can be live this week. Your your well wishes for Tony Fino sound like a guy who's recovering from a like a bad car accident or something. I'm wishing for the best from him, but I I think anybody who's ever bet on Tony Fino, especially at majors, uh, knows exactly what you mean by that sentiment. Yeah, majors, not at majors, the American Express, like, classic, like, anything, anything that hands out a trophy. <laughs> you kind of uh, have been beaten down. I have always said and joked with Tony, it's like, when it all, when the magic clicks, like, I don't think it'll make a difference whether it is, like, the 3M Open in Detroit or Minnesota, wherever it is, or, like, a really super special event like a major. Like, I think his chances of winning at like 16 to one when he was like the second best player in the field are almost equal to his chances of winning this week when, you know, it's the masters and ultra competitive. And I know there's hardcore golf fans out there snickering. Yeah. That percentage is zero chance, but <laughs> I don't know. I kind of knocks on the door a lot, but I can't bet him anymore. Well, you can check out all of Jeff's bets. This guy's he's posting them for free. He's giving you his bets for free at oddschecker.com. I don't know why you wouldn't take advantage of this. If you're betting on golf, uh, you can catch him on the Pat Mayo Experience, um, Mayo, the Mayo Medium Network, and the Jeff Feinberg Show on FTN Network. Jeff, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. I want to thank you so much for uh, being so generous and hopping on with me today. Yeah, beautiful. Anytime, and let's have a great Masters weekend. So, Travis Goff, pretty impressive, I guess, all things considered, at his introductory press conference. And I don't say that to be uh, tongue-in-cheek or backhanded. It's just that you would hope so, right? If uh, if an athletic director being introduced and he's not impressive and he doesn't speak well, I'd be really concerned. I'd say, are you sure? Are you sure this is the best you could get? But that wasn't the case. Goff was great. Now, he didn't say a whole lot, but Jeff Long said a whole lot, and that didn't go super well. So I think not saying a lot of things definitively and speaking with specificities was probably a part of the game plan. And if it was, then he knocked it out of the park. Let's talk more about it. Jesse Newell, Kansas City star, joins us now on the show. 
Jesse, what'd you think? You were there today. What'd you think of what Travis Goff had to say earlier today? Yeah, I mean, he, he seems like a guy, you know, 41 years old, young. I know Phil talked a little bit afterwards about having young energy in the department. and Maybe that's something that KU can benefit from. And we've always talked about, you know, you sometimes hire the, the guy that's opposite from, from the person before. But I thought he answered the questions well. <laughs> You've been around KU long enough to know that winning a press conference doesn't win you much. You know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> There's been a lot of press conferences around KU athletics and KU football in particular lately, but you know he, he seemed to um, have an understanding of KU situation. He seemed to answer questions um, when they were asked to him. Uh, you know, was polite, was thinking on his feet, all those sorts of things. I think, as you mentioned, he didn't reveal a whole lot, which is sort of the uh, kind of the the polish that you usually have when you're a a polished administrator that you're able to sort of talk without saying too much. And, and who really would expect him on day two of his new job with all these things coming up to come out there and just completely give the laundry list of what's going to happen when he's the athlete for Kansas. He probably doesn't know that yet either. So, yeah, he gave a good presence, and I can tell you this much. I know Bill Self has been and continues to be very, very impressed by him based off of the comments we heard from him today. So I think that's a good start for Travis Goff in this role. But, uh, again, time will tell, and we will see, because, like I said before, KU seems to have a lot of press conferences, and uh, sometimes those can be a little bit misleading. So what do we uh, evaluate him based off of now? Is it as simple as hire a good football coach, right? We, we always say there's, well, there's way more to it than that, but if you hire a good football coach or if you hire a football coach who can win games at Kansas, we will pretty much give you a pass for anything else that happens while you're an athletic director. So is that all that matters with Travis Goff? No, I mean, I don't think so. I think there's, it's it's obvious, all the things that are on his plate, all the things that are going to have to come up here in the next few months for him. And, you know, I was kind of thinking back to when KU hired Jeff Long, and even though the NCAA case was out there, and that was kind of the main point of conversation then with him, I mean, think about all the things that weren't the main point of conversation. I mean, obviously, the new football coach was going to be it, but... The NCAA case resolution is coming up quicker now. Big 12 realignment could be coming up here in a few years. Like you said, uh, the football coach thing is more pressing now with Travis Goff than it was Jeff Long. Jeff Long could kind of sit in the seat for a while and figure out what he wanted to do. Uh, with Travis Goff, he's got to make a decision the next couple of weeks, whether he wants to keep his interim or choose somebody outside the program. But, yeah, uh, eventually hiring a football coach, you know, very little, if we're just being completely honest here, very little has gone right for the athletic department outside of men's basketball for a while now, you know what I'm saying? So uh, obviously it's one thing to uh, keep that going and keep it afloat and kind of heading in the direction it has been because without that, you would really be in pretty, you know, muddy waters, that sort of thing. So there's all sorts of things. And fundraising, you know, pays down $30 million in uh, projected revenue from this year, just this fiscal year based off of the pandemic. Uh, Memorial Stadium is going to be something that's always brought up. It kind of gets keep, keeps getting passed on from athletic director to athletic director. Uh, so we'll see what happens. But, yeah, I, I, there are, this is going to take a wide skill set. This is going to take a lot of um, different parts of the experience that Travis Goff has had before. And, and once you figure out one thing, you're going to have to move immediately to the next. Again, once he figures out what he wants to do with the goal coach, he might have to hire a new one. And once he hires a new one, then the NCAA case could be over with. Once the NCAA case is over with, you know, then you've got the financial issues that come with that. So I think there's lots and lots of different things that are immediately going to, you know, call, uh, be needed for the athletic director to do at the University of Kansas. And that's probably why when he accepted this position over the weekend, 
He flew to Lawrence, and he started yesterday. I mean, there's really no two-week notice at this point. It's time to get to work, and uh, I think Travis Goff definitely knew that. I lied off open going in that this Kansas situation is going to be maybe a little bit different than other athletic director openings that would have been out there. I know he was asked about this a couple of times and didn't have a ton to say about it, but Bill Self, days before Travis Goff was hired, gets that lifetime contract. And we can get into the the finer details of what exactly that entails, lifetime contract, how much does that really change with Bill Self and, and his uh, job security. But on the surface, it's a pretty monumental deal for a guy who only had one year left on his deal, and you and I have talked a lot about when he was going to get that extension. Well, now he got it. How do you think that affected either the candidate pool of guys who were interested in Kansas or specifically a guy like Travis Goff's interest in Kansas. I know you can't assume his shoes and and figure out what he would think, but I'd have to imagine that played some sort of a role in hiring an AD who we now know is Travis Goff. Yeah, I don't know, Nick. It's really difficult to know that answer. I almost look at it from the opposite perspective, which is that KU, um, oh, okay, so if KU hired Travis Goff and KU wanted to extend Bill Self, wouldn't that have been kind of a nice thing to allow Travis Goff to do yes. a couple weeks into the job? Yeah. I mean, wouldn't that have been kind of a layup for the people, especially around these parts, maybe not nationally, because we know the national reaction to this has been uh, obviously a little bit different. But if you knew you were going to do it, um, then if you let the new guys do it, you kind of put him off and turn him off on the right foot. So you start with that, but I also sort of just think, how many of these things that have happened for Kansas have happened under interim ADs? And to me, uh, I've used this analogy, maybe it's not as great as I think it is, but, um, you know, Kurt Watson comes in as the interim AD. It's almost like the, the substitute teacher coming in. You know, what, what can you do when the substitute teacher there as opposed to when the new teacher comes in on Monday? And, and to me, and I think Travis Goff's words, whether intentionally or not intentionally, sort of spoke to this, um, look, Les Miles was out. Jeff Long was out. I think, especially the Jeff Long thing, the donors had a very big role in that. that they were ready to move on from Jeff Long. If we're going to continue to think that the donors had a very big role in something, going and talking to the chancellor and or interim AD and saying, lock up Bill Self for as long as he wants to be here, seems like something that could be sort of in the wheelhouse of the donors. We know that Bill Self is beloved around these parts. We know that he has a relationship with those top-level people that uh, would want to keep him around as long as he want to. So to me, it's almost sort of like this is something that was done not only to throw support behind Bill Self and to keep him around and to get that thing done so that there's no question marks about um, him as it goes into this season, which would have been the final year's contract, but also to me it's sort of like a, a power move on KU's part, but also a move that's just like, look, uh, interim AD, real AD, nothing is going to stop this from happening. Get the deal done. Get Bill Self locked up, and and that's what happened. That's how it came about. So again, it, it seems like maybe I'm speaking out of turn here. I would think most athletic departments would leave a decision like that for the new AD. I, I just think with Bill Self in the situation that it is here with the chancellor and the donors, it didn't matter who the AD was. This was going to get done either way. So they basically took advantage of the fact that uh, the interim AD was in there right then and. Um, they struck. They, they struck, and now Bill Self is going to be the head coach of Kansas for a long time unless, you know, he gets fired without cause, and there's all sorts of parts of his contract that would allow that to happen. All those sorts of things about isn't monumental, but I, 
to me, it's almost sort of the opposite of that. It was just the moment was right for everyone involved that was already on board at KU before they hired a new athletic director to get this thing done, so they got it done. Do you think this is more about the image of, of a lifetime contract, right? I mean, that was the headline. That was the headline for everybody who wrote about it was lifetime contract because people don't get lifetime contracts, right? Football, basketball players, athletes, nobody gets lifetime contracts. Bill Self has a lifetime contract. Is it more about just being able to say publicly to recruits, to whoever you want to send a message to, Bill Self is here for the long haul than it really is about uh, going through the contract with the fine-tooth comb and, and, and trying to figure out whether or not it really is a lifetime contract? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, that was the wording on it for good reason. Again, with the recruits, with the NCAA case, with all that stuff. Um, they are standing behind their man. Bill Self is their guy. So uh, Douglas Gerard, the chancellor, you know, KU Athletics as a whole, you know, without a real or a, a hired AD at the moment, but um, at that moment. But, yeah, they're standing behind Bill Self. As you said, the details on the conduct are a little bit different where, hey, if KU – wants to fire him without cause, they owe him $5.41 million, plus whatever's left on his retention bonus for that year, which could be a low amount depending on when you fire him. But it, it doesn't prohibit either side really from moving on. It just basically is a contract that works in perpetuity. You know, if both sides are happy with it, it gets signed for another year, and it gets signed for another year, and it kind of the five-year deal keeps rolling over, over, and over again. But, you know, there's even like the clause in there that if Bill Self wants to go to the NBA, it's a $2 million buy on his end. And it has nothing in there about going to another college job, but there's, it's not keeping it's not keeping him from going elsewhere, and it's not keeping Kansas from firing him. I mean, it's not like it can't happen. It's uh, the wording in the contract was based off the current NCAA case. It can't happen with cause. Okay, you can't try to fire him and recoup all the money from that five point four one million dollars it would pay him annually. So. Yeah, it's, it's semantics there, but again, the semantics were created by KU Athletics by calling it a lifetime contract and by making that statement out very publicly on a national level that Bill Self is going to be with the program for the foreseeable future. And again, it's it's, it's a big statement. You know, you saw Sean Miller today. Uh, Sean Miller was, was fired in Arizona. Um, and, and obviously people are going to, you know, the cases are different, but they are similar in, in the realm of what the NCAA is alleging against a specific program. So KU was trying to be pretty clear about where they stand with Bill Self, and I think they absolutely did that with lifetime contract, even if, again, I, I keep using it in quotation marks, I quote lifetime contract, even if it's a little bit of semantics there, it definitely is the impact of what it was intended to convey. I think that was definitely felt all over. Jesse Newell of the Kansas City Star with us here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk earlier today. KU got their third edition of this very young offseason, and it's another transfer, this time from Drake, Joseph Yesifu, who it's you could go through the numbers, and they don't really tell the, the full story. I think most accurately, Jesse, he became a starter, really, over the last month of the season, and he wasn't just a starter. He was their best player and a borderline star down the stretch, averaging over 24 points per game, shooting 46% from three the last nine games of the season. I don't really know what to make of this, but what does what does it signal first off, and, and how do you think this guy fits with the program? Well, we've talked about this all offseason, Nick. What was KU missing on his team? I mean, what was KU missing last year? Playmakers, it not was, creators. It was, missing, it was missing a point guard who could go get his own and could – you know, either create for others or create for himself. And, and we've talked so much 
who are the guys that thrive under Bill Self? Frank Mason, Sharon Collins, Tyson Taylor. I mean, you just go down the line of these point guards who talk about those 10, 9, 8, 7, and those guys go inside and get themselves a bucket. And uh, yes, if who can do that? You know, he's a guy that not only can shoot from three, I think he was 39% for the season. Um, and that's really, really nice to have from the point guard position. But if you go, you know, watch the NCAA tournament game, he had against Wichita State, you know, he can get in the lane, he can create for himself, he can hit those floaters, that sort of thing. And uh, I, I hesitate to call him the missing piece for Kansas. But, you know, if you look at their roster, I mean, they have depth on depth about everywhere else. And they have guys that we've talked about before that Otay Abaji and Christian Brown and Jalen Wilson and David McCormick, who are very, very good in their own right, but could definitely have, could use somebody to come on the roster and take some pressure off of them offensively. Somebody could go and get their own and then also potentially create for those other guys and, and draw some attention in there. It felt like KU was like that one player short almost the entire season. And so, again, missing piece might be too strong, but. You know, I, I went on the little Bart Torvik measure that we love to go through with the roster construction, and this addition for for Kansas moved them from eighth in his preseason rankings to third. And I, I think that speaks to we all saw signs and flashes of Dewan Harris doing better things toward the end of the season, and I, I think he'll be great in the role that he has next year. But the addition of Yesifu and putting him on top of Dewan Harris. And now the rotation that that gives Kansas, instead of having Dewan Harris having to be the guy in there and maybe not have that offensive skill set I just talked about that can make Ochai better, that can make Christian Brown better, all those sorts of things. Uh, I think this is a big piece for Kansas. Probably the really one thing that was missing from last year's team that that Kansas uh, and Bill Self were definitely looking for when they were going out on the recruiting trail. So, um, I I mean, to me, this is the biggest news of the offseason for Kansas, if you look at all the guys that they've signed and all the guys that they've added. So we'll see how it plays out in the end, but this seems to be the one player with the one skill set that KU desperately needed last year, so we'll see if they get that from him in the 21-22 season. Yeah, I mean, I think you nailed it on the head with just the idea of, of him coming in and making other guys better. Do you think they're done? It's hard to tell, right? Because you don't know about decisions that are going to be made from guys who want to test the waters and the timeline for when they have to make the decision to ultimately come back is months and months down the line, which I'm sure makes things difficult for a lot of coaches, Bill Self included. So do you, do you feel like this is a coaching staff that's going to continue to go out there and try and get additions? Because I don't know, I'm pretty sure the math would indicate they don't have room at this very second. I know they could make room pretty easily, but where do you kind of expect them to go from here? Yeah, I mean, it, I think it's, I think they're very close to being done, if that makes sense. Um, you know, Christian Bishop's still out there from Creighton. If they could add him, I mean, you just don't turn it down. You know what I mean? Like, the guy was a stud at Creighton last year and would give KU, again, if you were going to say one thing that KU was missing last year was absolutely the playmaker or point guard. The second thing you'd say they were missing, which is athleticism above the rim, and that's what Bishop gave Creighton, and obviously his skill set is. So, uh, you know, outside of a guy like that, potentially KU could be done. You talked about guys you know, potentially staying or going, testing NBA waters, all those sorts of things. The bottom line is <laughs> the way those up and his staff have recruited this offseason, their depth is pretty ridiculous already. I mean, I, I don't think that they just need to continue to recruit over the top of everybody. Like I just told you. Well, yeah, that's what you Corbett's just said, though, right? Because in a way, I mean, Christian Bishop would be recruiting over some guys. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm saying if you can get him and he's just loud by KU and he thinks he's going to come in here and, and do all those things, he probably would. He'd be close to a starter, then you take him. I, I just, if it's not him, I, isn't he the top of what's left? I, I think he's the top of what's left, uh, in my opinion. Uh, I, I don't know that they're in on a bunch of other guys that are at his level in there. And if you don't get him, I, I think that they are still fine. I mean, you're still returning Jalen Wilson and David McCormick, you would assume, from last year's team. And then you add in all those other guys. You know, we could talk about Cam Martin. Uh, we could talk about uh, Zach Clements. We could talk about KJ Adams. I mean, you can go down, up and down the line, Mitch Lightfoot. I mean, he played rotation minutes for Kansas last year, too. So, uh, I, at some point, I guess my main point is this. At some point, you know, whether those guys decide whether they're staying or going with Kansas, Ochai and David McCormick, all those guys, you have enough players. KU has enough players. They, they get 13 scholarships. They get an external with Mitch Lightfoot coming back because his doesn't count. I mean, you don't need to load your roster with 14 guys who can play. But that's my main point. And, and Kansas right now probably has, regardless of what happens, they have about 11 or 12 guys who can play. So, um, again, if you get Christian Bishop, great. You add him to the roster, you add athleticism, uh, and KU becomes better because of that. But if you don't get him, maybe you find another piece. But I think this KU team is pretty darn good right now heading forward, even without that other piece. And that's based a lot off of the recruiting they're doing lately and then also the guys that you're assuming are returning uh, after – Decent, if not very good, seasons last year. Before I let you go, Jesse, um, you know i I wonder how much of this is, and I'm not I'm not accusing this, but Derek and I talked about this yesterday. Like the idea that the season didn't go the way you wanted it to. You kind of knew it all season long. If you're Bill Self, like this just is not the roster that I need to play the way that I want to play. Like, can you go too far? in trying to correct and get back to to where you want to be because I don't know like what the game plan is for these guys who KU's brought in but very quickly man you start counting these guys and trying to figure out who thinks they're going to do what this year and I mean you're probably in double digits if not higher of guys who like fully expect to come in and play roles and like I get it I'm sure a lot of guys think that way. But even last year, like Tristan and Aruna, like you're not you're not coming into your second year at Kansas and expecting like, oh, I'm gonna be one of the dudes. I feel like there's a lot of guys on this team who are going to expect to have big roles and I just I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I just I'm curious as to the effects that that's gonna have. Yeah, um it's a good question. Uh about all I can say is that this has happened in the past, and it's big time college basketball, and um, that it sort of just goes with the territory, if you will. I mean, I'm, I'm even thinking, as you're talking about this, of a guy like Bobby Pettiford, who committed last week and probably thought, hey, I can go in and compete for the starting point guard role, and now with the news today, <laughs> probably not. You know what I mean? Unless he just comes to campus and is amazing. So. Yeah, um, this is this is what happens, and with the transfer portal, what it is, it's allowed more opportunities to grab those types of players. And uh, fortunately or unfortunately for Kansas, it's probably going to allow more players the opportunity to to leave and find other opportunities if they want to. I, I think as long as that door is open both ways, that it makes it a lot easier. And obviously, if uh, guys can go out there and get immediate eligibility at their new schools, that would make things more fair as well. And um, you know. I, to be completely honest, you know, you see a guy like Quinn Grimes in the Final Four and, and being a All-America type player for Houston. Uh, these things can work out for guys at other places as well. 
it's unfortunate sometimes that that's what it takes, and sometimes that, that guys don't get the roles that they envision for themselves. But, again, it's sort of part of a bigger landscape of college basketball that's been happening for a long time now. So uh, hopefully things kind of lean a little bit more towards the players in case they do need to make moves. They can go to other places and are less limited. I think we're moving towards a world like, a world like that. Um, but, yeah, in the meantime, yeah, you do wonder about a lot of guys. Uh, a lot of guys on Katie's roster, where the minutes are going to come from and, and how the rotation is going to shake out. Because, like I said, at a certain point, you don't need 14 guys to play a sport where you put five on the court. And right now, KU is pretty close to having 12, 13, even 14 capable guys of doing that. And then how that all shakes out is anybody's. Do you think there's any chance? Well, of course there's a chance. Um, what are the chances that Ochai goes to the NBA draft and keeps his name in the NBA draft? I mean, low. Uh you know, and it just, he seems like a guy that gets it. Yeah, I, I mean that as a compliment to Ochai. Yeah, he doesn't, he didn't seem like a guy that came to Kansas and was like, I'm out of here in two years or whatever. And got the guy, the kid was redshirting his first year. Uh, you know, he seems to just understand. And I think people that would be honest with him, and if you look at the draft board, I mean, the draft board that are out there now aren't going to be very different from what they are going to be or the ones that will happen in two months or so. And, and Ochai's, you know, struggling to make the second round of most of those. I mean, I think he's going to be pretty aware of what his stock is and potentially how he could improve it, especially if he did a few more things in his senior season. And um, also just, you know, just knowing that right now he doesn't project to be a draft guy. And you've seen recent examples of guys who have gone pro, not been drafted. It's very tough uh, a tough go of it from there. So we'll see. I mean, what ten percent, fifteen percent? But the new rules, the way they are, you know, Ochai can declare, test the waters, do all the workouts, get all the feedback, and then not have to make a decision for quite a while. So that's sort of what I said about Kansas earlier. They have a roster in place. They can let Ochai take all the time he needs, and if he comes back, great. If he doesn't, then um, they still have plenty of guys that will be looking for minutes. So I think they can be willing to be patient with him and, and let him make his decision. But I, I would fully expect Ochai Abadji to be back with the Jacks next year and try to improve on a few of those things that would make him a late first-round, early second-round pick rather than a guy who's kind of on that undrafted sort of borderline. He's Jesse Newell. Check out his work in the Kansas City Star. And you can hear him here every Wednesday. Jesse, appreciate it as always, man. All right. Thanks, Nick.